Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, episode 46, George Bernard Shaw on film. My name is David Blakesley, and I'm the host of this monthly podcast where we talk about the films of the Criterion Collection's Eclipse series of overlooked, overshadowed, lost, forgotten, obscure, strange, and films you've never heard of on DVD, bare-bones editions that uh, have been you know, released by the Criterion Collection for the last uh, several years, but for all we know, the, the series has come to a halt as we're kind of stuck on, what, 44 right now. But we are here, uh, joined by a guest. My name is David Blakesley again, and Trevor Barrett, my co-host. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning. Hello. And we are also joined by a guest who was with us not that long ago, the one and only Lady P, coming at us from the West Coast. Good morning, Lady P. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. It's very nice to have you back. This is Pauline Lampert, host of the FlixWise podcast. I'm probably sure that... About 99.5% of the listeners of this podcast are aware of FlixWise, but if you're not, for that one or two people who don't, um, the FlixWise podcast has been going through the sight and sound list of the top, was it 250 films of all time? 250, yep. That's right. We uh, just finished, uh, well, just published an episode on Ugetsu where I was a guest on her show, and I guess in a way we're kind of returning the favor, but it's really not about favors, it's about... Uh, the enjoyment of films that uh, come at us from a lot of different angles. And we are going to be talking about uh, three films, or maybe even four films, from the 1930s and early 1940s, produced in England by uh, the director-producer Gabriel Pascal, adaptations of the playwright George Bernard Shaw. So, uh, yeah, so let's just kind of get the conversation started. Maybe we'll do some biographical stuff on those two figures, uh, Pascal and Shaw, as we get going here, but uh, Lady P, you uh, you were pretty open to joining us for this episode, so just tell us a little bit about your take on these films, and maybe just an overall impression of, uh, you know, had you seen these films before? Maybe I'll just start by asking, is this a first-time experience for you, or were you familiar with any of these titles already? Um, I'd seen Caesar and Cleopatra before, um, and I was the reason I was excited to do this was because I wanted to revisit that film. Uh, I love Vivian Lee, love Claude Rains. Um, but I remember my reaction being kind of lukewarm. So I thought if this is significant enough to merit a placement in an Eclipse Viewer box set, I better give it another shot. Um, and I'd never seen Androcles and the Lion, and I'd never seen Major Barbara. I'd seen Pygmalion before, uh, which is not included in this box set, but is also a Gabriel Pascal production. Um, of an adaptation of a George Bernard Shaw play, obviously. Um, and <laughs> my reaction, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I, I, I have very mixed feelings. I think maybe my uh, distaste for this kind of polemic, kind of just sort of um, condescending like British humor is just <laughs> maybe I've lost my taste for it a little bit. Um, but I, I can't say that I loved any of these movies though. They all had very interesting aspects to them. Um, and they are, they're, they're, they're kind of, they are interesting relics. Let's I'll, I'll start there. <laughs> Well, I'll just assure you, Lady P, you're among friends okay. this morning because <laughs> I think we have a very similar take on it. This is this is not one of those Eclipse series sets that I'm going to recommend to the novices out there unless I just happen to 
know on some personal level that you're just a huge fan of George Bernard Shaw or that you have some unreconstructed chauvinistic imperialistic tendencies (laughs) in which case this is right up your alley pal (laughs) Trevor why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of a reaction of just a first glimpse at this set oh so Lady P said polemic and condescending (laughs) and and that that pretty much captures my views on uh, george bernard shaw in a nutshell he's never been someone that i've uh really uh you know cared to follow that much i had to read him quite a bit when i was in college i was uh doing master's degree in modern british literature and you know so he, he came up a little bit just for writing in that time period um but he just seems like, you know, just like these films are a relic of their time, he seems like a relic of his time as well. You know, he he was he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and I can't think anyone would give it to him today. Mm. I think that he was just, uh, you know, writing in a time when when trying to polemicize about social change um, was a little bit more acceptable before we saw what some of these maneuvers to... Uh, inject social change can do and certainly some of his views that are on display in major barbara about uh, you know uh, munitions and the military industrial complex and all that kind of stuff you know we've we've got a, a very big aversion to that kind of stuff today and i just think that so because of that some of his stuff is dated which shows up in these in these pictures uh just from a content perspective um and you know because he was involved in them and wanted to uh, ensure that they were filmed to to a degree and we'll get into that degree here in a little bit but to a degree as faithfully as they could to his words and to what he said and to his characters you know he was always very interested in controlling our our understanding of his plays um to the extent that he would write lengthy introductions to them um, the one for Androcles and the Lion is longer than the play itself, uh, just because he, he wanted that control. He he was a polemicist. He was he did consider himself um, a genius and someone whose views should be taken very seriously and not mis- misconstrued for someone else's own ends. And he wanted that kind of control over these films as well. And that unfortunately uh, shows itself a little bit too when you know they are stage productions, and that's kind of how he wanted to keep them. And so the films themselves become relics of of, of that uh, method as well. But, you know, there there is something worth uh, going back and seeing these as curiosities of their times and, and to see where we're at today versus where, you know, people were at back then. I mean, Bosley Crowther absolutely loved Major Barbara, uh, fawning over it, con- con- you know, nonstop in his review. And there's a lot to love in that play or in that in that film as well. I, that's probably my favorite of the set. Um, but I don't think that we would be that fawning today over that particular film. Um, but you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll, well, I guess we'll see as we get into it. But I, I'm definitely on the same page in general as you and Lady P. That you know, this isn't a set that I would recommend. It's probably in my lower tier. But, you know, there's still some fun stuff, and I am still excited to discuss it because it was worthwhile for me to go back and and see these. In fact, I'd never seen any of these um, in this filmed version with uh, Gabriel Pascal as the producer and sometimes director. I'd only read the um, two of the plays, uh, Major Barbara and Androcles and the Lion, 
And so this was a nice revisit for those. And then to get to see Caesar and Cleopatra, you know, I, I'm excited to talk about him. Very good. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. So as I'm wont to do in these episodes, we like to give a little background as to, you know, what what went into the making of these films that eventually went into the making of this set. So we start with the figure of George Bernard Shaw. Trevor, you've kind of already alluded to uh, his, uh, you know, his importance as a writer, as an intellectual leader. And, you know, as I was just doing a little bit of research, I mean, he was the founder of the Fabian Society, which was in turn uh, kind of part of the founding of the English uh, Labor Party in politics. So, you know, Shaw was not just a, uh, a writer, a creative uh, presence in terms of stagecraft and, you know, you know wordplay and those types of things because, you know, and he, although he was a very prolific and, and very talented writer in terms of just his output and uh, and his uh, kind of following in, in the uh, great traditions of English, uh, you know, stagecraft and theatrical writing, but, but he was a social activist. Uh, he came from very working class roots. He, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, a pretty significant impact on the larger uh, direction of, of uh, British and, and UK society in his times, which you know goes back well into the you know latter eighteen uh, hundreds, like eighteen seventy something, I think, is when he moved to London. So you know he had a very long and established career and was definitely one of those great men of of British letters um, at the time that these films were made. But he was quite advanced in years. I think already up in his eighties when he was uh, getting involved in, uh, you know, the motion picture industry. And his his renown as a playwright and as a, as a cultural mover and shaker was such that uh, many attempts had been made to get him to authorize film productions of his plays, and he had done a little bit of that but was never satisfied with the results. And again, as Trepper said, he exerted uh, and insisted upon a really high degree of control and uh, seemed like he would probably go to the end of his days and that he would never really hand that control over to anybody else. Uh, but then there's this uh, unique and curious and, and quite intriguing character of Gabriel Pascal, who, uh, you know, basically is, is a man of mystery. It's a phrase that's actually used in Major Barbara to describe uh, the, the patriarch of this family. And we'll talk about that film in a little bit. But Pascal himself was quite a man of mystery, a man born in Transylvania, <laughs> literally in Transylvania. But uh, nobody knows what his actual birth name was. Uh, Gabriel Pascal was a name he gave to himself, and there is no record of anything that he did or any birth records or anything like that until he's a, a young man, I think 17 years old or so, he joined the military and and just wound up kind of becoming this global traveler and, and a man who knew uh, fame and fortune and bankruptcy and reconstructed himself and uh, uh, as a young man had a very chance encounter with George Bernard Shaw. Uh, while Shaw was swimming, I think swimming in the ocean somewhere, and uh, Pascal met up with him and made an impression, and, and Shaw extended an invitation to come and meet him sometime, and it was just a very impulsive, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a moment of destiny, I, I guess you would say. But something about Pascal's gift for hyperbole and, and uh recreation of himself when all seems kind of lost and, and uh, hopeless, uh, there's some kind of connection that he and Shaw had. And Gabriel Pascal uh, was able to you know, craft the film Pygmalion, which, uh, 
you know, turned into a very successful uh, you know, enterprise that uh, had great box office uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And really, that film, which has its own Criterion release, it's uh, spine number 85. That spine number now is out of print, but you can still get the uh, uh, version of it on the Essential Art House series, which is a kind of a different and long-expired imprint of the Criterion Collection. Uh, you can get that film, Pygmalion, on disc if you're so inclined. Uh, I think all these films are available on uh, Criterion's Hulu channel and presumably will be transferring over to the new Filmstruck service whenever that no, Not quite. Not quite? Oh. Uh, Caesar and Cleopatra is not available on the Hulu channel. That oh, I can okay. okay. The well. other three um, that, we're, that you're talking about yeah. are including Pygmalion. So why that disc is out of print, eh, who knows? <laughs> well, I think it's just a, a disc that they just decided not to renew because they still have the rights, but... Uh, yeah. The the Criterion disc is completely bare bones. It is literally the the film, and that's it. You know, there's nothing else on it. So it might as well have just been an Eclipse series entry, except they'd already released it based on the fame of, of Shaw and the uh, you know the reputation of the film itself, which, as probably a lot of people know, is the kind of literary basis for the film My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that financial success uh, kind of allowed uh, Pascal to to bankroll his next few. Uh, uh, you know, productions which we have here in this box. With Cedar and Cleopatra not being available on Hulu, I'm just wondering, maybe David O. Selznick isn't quite ready to release the rights to Vivian Lee <laughs> to appear on the streaming media or something <laughs> like that. But, uh, yeah, that's just a little bit of background. I don't know. I, I uh, wondered if uh, any of you have any other thoughts on, on Shaw or, in particular, Pascal. We've t- discussed Shaw pretty thoroughly, I think, thoroughly enough, but Pascal really did strike me as quite a remarkable figure as I was uh, reading through his biography on Wikipedia. Um, and I also embedded a video of him uh, in action as a kind of a behind-the-scenes clip during the making of Caesar and Cleopatra, which was a big, pulp, pub, highly publicized, you know, big-budget epic uh, during the, the war years of, of the 1940s in England. But uh, either of you have any thoughts on these two characters? I mean, I read the Wikipedia page that you forwarded to us, and it's one of those that it's kind of like it, – it almost reads like someone has uh, gone hacked the site and made some of the stuff up, you know? Um, yeah, or, or Pascal himself is right, yeah. <laughs> doing his own hype, you exactly, know? Exactly, yeah. That, that also occurred to me. Obviously, you mentioned that there is no documentation for his life prior to his military service, so uh, his tale of uh, – being raised by by gypsies and basically, you know, just kind of making his way through Europe as a hobo wanderer type. Um, that's sort of how myths and legends are built, and it seems very clear he was very invested in building his own myth. Um, and the whole story with the the friendship between Shaw and Pascal is remarkable, um, but. <laughs> it's it's a it's funny that these two men were very taken with each other, but I don't know that uh, a character endorsement from Shaw means all that much to me personally. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, you know. Um, so you, you almost get the sense he's he, that Pascal is the foundling. Yeah, <laughs> you know that that they're looking for to pass on their their amazing gifts yes. that, as comes up in in the. Please. Right, exactly. Yeah, uh, Pascal is the Pygmalion, or or the uh, he's Eliza. Um, <clears throat> but 
yeah, so <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a it's a cool story. It's uh, kind of wish someone had made a movie about Pascal's life. Maybe it's not too late. That might be a little bit more interesting yeah. or a little bit more uh, applicable, revelatory by today's standards. But yeah. but we do have these we do have these relics, and I guess um, it, it reminds me of a few things. You know, um, uh, Trevor and I and Scott talked about H.G. Uh, Wells' Things to Come, another yeah. production of the same era <laughs> where H.G. Wells with an, another you know great man of british letters who was fairly reprehensible by today's <laughs> standards and yet we we i think we do benefit uh nowadays by understanding who these uh you know who these giants uh, and cultural influencers were and kind of even what's wrong with the the intellectual legacy that we've inherited from them and who still seem to have a, a significant impact, maybe not directly by people, you know, reading their works and then saying, yeah, this is how we're going to, you know, shape our society. But, but by the, the basic underlying ideas and thoughts behind them that really do legitimize a lot of things that I, I see as fairly oppressive and, and uh, kind of cultural burdens that we're really on a large scale struggling to move beyond and, and put behind us uh, Shaw and Wells and, and just kind of the mentality that these films come out of uh, when they get on that more serious angle uh, really uh, it's, it's just kind of uh, a confrontation to me of some of the problems that <laughs> we've been inheriting and, and have been struggling with for generations and so uh, you see sort of how that's just built into the system of things of laws and and just assumptions about how society operates and who are the who are the beneficiaries of privilege and who are the people who are kind of you know on the fringes or, or are destined to be nothing more than the servants or the working class and such. So, yeah, I mean, even though some of this is, is humorous and, and there's definitely a lot of wit and creative charm, it's just kind of like you sort of just have to shake your head and say, oh, man, <laughs> what, what a messed up situation uh, they're making light of and, and how and, – and, and here's the other thing too is that Shaw himself was deemed as a, as a progressive. You know, he, was, he was a person who was you know, trying to you know, push his society out of some of that more uh, – uh, kind of cloistered thinking and, and, and open up new possibilities, but he still had a very aristocratic outlook on things. Right. Yeah. His, a lot of his progressivism is, is I think more because he wanted to free society from things like uh, religious restrictions and, um, you know, some of the more cultural mores, but, but he, he fell into some other pitfalls in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was, uh, he spoke out against uh, racism and anti-Semitism, though actively cheer, uh, supported Hitler or rather said kind things about him. And uh, so not only – I mean he's he's a man – he's a kind of a, a hypocrite in some respects, um, though aren't we all? But I think what's frustrating is that he seems to think he has some clarity of vision um, where when in fact like a lot of his messaging is really muddled and conflicted – um, which makes it makes it for a kind of less than effective polemic, right? Like this, yeah. like it, it's almost like I watch these films and I'm like, and the person who authored them is clearly saying like, this is so clear, this is so obvious. Why don't you understand this? This, uh, you know, this very clear, succinct way of of governing and how and just like the way that human beings should behave and 
um, particularly in Major Barbara. Um, and yet he, it's obvious to, to us now that he wasn't even sure of himself, right? Like, I've heard comparisons to Anne Rand, who's sort of on the opposite end of the uh, political spectrum. Um, but it, it, to be fair to Anne Rand, which I'm generally not inclined to be, um, <laughs> at least she understood. Like, her point was very clear, and it's, uh, there, there, there was no... Um, she was more concise in her way, you know, like she, it took her way too long to get to her point and she was, uh, big on bloviating, but, uh, at the very least, it, like, I understand what she's getting at. Whereas Shaw, I'm just like, what are you, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Well, I think another yeah. interesting point about these plays is that they were all, I believe all of them were written prior to world war one mm -hmm. and really yes. world war one was a, just a massive game changer. I don't even think we grasp how different the world was after 1914 um, versus before. And and so a lot of the uh, – with, with Major Barbara, the assumptions about the arms trade and the Salvation Army, uh, faith versus uh, commerce and all of that was done really kind of in this uh, Edwardian era where – a calamity of the magnitude of World War One was was just unthinkable. You know, wars were just you know they were bloody and messy affairs, but they were localized skirmishes, just kind of a slight readjusting of the borders or kind of a show of strength to kind of you know get your adversaries to back down or whatever. Um, but you know, nobody quite recognized what humanity was about to get into, and so these these plays, which were very minimally adapted for screen. Not only, you know, there's the staginess issue because we have these somewhat unrealistic, you know, stagey dialogues going on, but, but the, the, uh, the assumptions uh, that informed Shaw's views of things really don't seem to have been adapted for the changing times, which is, you know, this is the period kind of between the wars and then we get into the war years uh, and then a post-war film in the you know, early 1950s with Androcles and the Lion. So, you know, Shaw's kind of kept the text, but, you know, unlike somebody like Shakespeare who's got a certain timelessness uh, to his plays, uh, Shaw's really do seem uh, captive of their moment. And when you've got stories and, and kind of philosophies, if you will, of the late 1890s, early 1900s, you know, being preserved intact in a, in a film from, you know, 40, 50, made 40, 50 years later. Uh, yeah, there's just a disconnectedness or just disjointedness. And then of course we've got the gaps between their production and, and our society and all the things that have happened culturally in the years ever since. Mm -hmm. Just to yeah. just to put a little bit of uh, dates to those, so the first one, um, the oldest one is Caesar and Cleopatra, and it was written in the 1890s, and then we get Major Barbara, uh, written in 1905, I think, yes, 1905, and then Androcles and the Lion is 1912, which happens to also be the same year of Pygmalion. So that's that's kind yeah. of where we're talking about, and that's you know he he. That's when he did most of his big, big work, and uh, that kind of also reminds me of of H. G. Wells, and and we talked about that. You know, here's someone who had been kind of at the top of their game at the turn of the century, and had acquired so much literary fame and clout that fifty years later, forty years later, 
um, you know, they're still able to take control of productions <laughs> and screw them up um, because of their 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 vision for what uh, the cinema should do, and they just never quite caught up to that. And it, you know, the films suffer because of that. Yeah. Well, I think now that we've, I think, sufficiently distanced ourselves <laughs> from anything kind of, uh, you know, uh, distasteful or, or uh, just awkward about the ideology of these films, maybe we can talk about some of the things that we did find enjoyable because this is not a complete waste of time set in, by any means. Um, so uh, let's just talk a little bit about Major Barbara. Um, you know, Pygmalion, of course, we've, we've discussed that. That was the the predecessor to these films and, and major Barbara brings, brings back a pretty key ingredient in the, in the person of Wendy Hiller, who I think really did a very uh, winning job as, as the uh, Eliza Doolittle character in, in uh, Pygmalion. And uh, now she takes on another title role as major Barbara. Uh, Pauline, do you, do you have any kind of affection for Wendy Hiller? I'm sure you've probably seen other performances of hers. I, I really enjoyed her turn here and, and, uh, yeah, she was, you know, definitely one of the the the, uh, the outstanding aspects of this film. I just I just enjoyed watching her go through the changes of her character. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, Wendy Hiller is great. Uh, I think hers is the definitive Eliza Doolittle, which I understand that them's fighting words, but um, <laughs> I, th- I yeah, I think she's fantastic. <laughs> she's lovely in Pygmalion and in Major Barbara. Um, and you know, the the movie had me going up until the father takes the family out to his to his uh, factory <laughs> compound. there, yeah. plant. Yes. Yeah, yeah, um, really, his his slave village is yeah, what it turns exactly. out to be. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, happy slaves, exactly. Right? Yeah, they're they're <laughs> they can't go anywhere else because they'll never find better housing. I I mean, it was just such a head scratcher um but up until then her crisis of faith was really moving um and for a while there i was like oh this is actually a pretty fine film and um i understand she sells out at the end yeah totally oh that was so disheartening um but uh (laughs) and also we want the um rex harrison character to be kind of this ballast who sort of questions her faith and uh her convictions uh throughout but then he his character kind of turns on a dime and he uh ultimately i think betrays her and as well as the rest of her family and that they all kind of glom on to this idea of capitalism as savior and uh it's just without question that uh that uh the 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 virtues of industry will are the ultimate salvation for the working man um as opposed to basic human decency and kindness um <laughs> which yeah it's ridiculous um <laughs> just tell it like it is yeah i, I agree yeah. um but you know as we've discussed it is it's a time capsule and the shots of the factory are still um astounding you know kind of uh yeah it's a great sequence and yeah. a great montage of you know industrial might you know at its brawniest yeah for sure yeah and which does call to mind things to come as well yep, that nice yep. little sequence of yeah i wonder which came first it really does seem like they're copying from the same template now 
Yeah. I mean, I understand that Caesar and Cleopatra was the more expensive production, but uh, as far as the most visual, uh, most cinematic, I'd say Major Barbara is the, the clearer winner in this box set. And we can give credit to uh, David Lean right. and Ronald Neem, who were both very key figures here, both of them kind of in their apprentice stage. Of course, David Lean has gone on to become one of the just you know towering figures of, of uh, directors uh, just because he had the taste for those rousing you know epics, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and, of course, some pretty great adaptations of Dickens, uh, David Copperfield. Or not David Copperfield, Oliver Twist yeah. and Great Expectations. Did he do David Copperfield? No, I think somebody else did that one. So, but yeah, so so those those talents definitely, uh, I think, surpassed anything that Gabriel Pascal himself <laughs> brought to the equation. Yeah. He was more of a hype meister, but he got the job done. He he certainly put these things together, and he's got the director's credit. Even though I, I'm pretty sure the camera operations and compositions were were uh, from from uh, Mr. Lean and, and Mr. Neem. So, Trevor, I think you were going to inject a comment a little earlier. Is there something you wanted to add? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned how these are kind of relics of their time back in the you know uh, Edwardian era, but um, but I think Major Barbara plays very interestingly for its time period when the film was made as well. It's 1941, and they're making this during, you know, uh, the Blitz. I mean, they they had to shut down production a time or two because of um, air raids. And you can absolutely see that this roused so much um, passion because that kind of shows military as a necessary evil that will also help people get to work and get off, uh, off of the streets and, and put their put their energy into something valuable for society you know not savior through good uh, goodwill and through you know forgiveness and all of that but savior through we help people get their necessities we're going to make sure society can even survive to be kind to one another and and that plays out quite quite well with the with the the script of the play i think for that time period so this is one that i think um probably came out at the perfect time for the for the the script for the underlying play to really stand out and i think that's one reason that bosley crowther's review was so passionate because he saw you know here are these people working against all odds and kind of showing you know the value of work and and industry and so that's this is the one maybe exception to that. I'm not sure if you agree, um, but when you were talking about that earlier, I thought, well, I, I agree with all that except for Major Barbara. <laughs> well, I, I I think it's it's you know th- th- that's a good point. I mean, you almost expect to see a buy war bonds message <laughs> to come out you know the, yes, in the last frame there, at the end, kind um, of like at, at the end of. Um, of the Hitchcock's foreign correspondent. Ah, yes. It's like, get out there and work, everybody. Get out there. Get yeah, out there. Like, Plant those victory gardens, people. We're counting on you. Uh, so, you know, the, you, yeah, you can definitely recognize the, you know, the martial tone of the times and the, uh, you know, the reliance on the you know, the munitions dealers, the factories and the laboring men who, you know, forge those weapons to defend our freedoms. I mean, that that's definitely there. But still, when you look at the, you know, the aristocratic mindset behind it and the, 
just that that kind of you know condescending smugness that that uh, you know that the father sort of carries with him and basically spills into the brains of everybody uh, following after him, uh, in, including you know his daughter uh, Barbara and uh, and Dolly or Adolphus the the suitor who uh, turns out to be an, a suitable heir uh, to the, to the uh, the family business there. There's still there's just this kind of you know, corruption of you know we're going to live in our you know ivory palaces with all the trappings and you know uh, goodness of life dolly is going to you know drive a hard bargain with the old man to uh you know show that he's got his spine you know his his metal to kind of drive a hard bargain which a captain of industry has to do and then right after that you see the uh the pugnacious kind of street fighter who's uh, happy to have his you know you know, three bob a week job or whatever, and, and he's content with that. And and even Barbara is uh, uh, abandoning her faith uh, that that led her to serve the truly the poor and the oppressed and and the starving of the London slums in order to kind of take that same do-gooder instinct to the benefit of the you know kind of the the working class drones who you know keep. You know the 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 weapons, uh, the, the bellows burning, and and uh, you know keep cranking out the material. So so there is this kind of um, fallback on elitism that is just I don't know, just kind of discouraging. I feel like that that. <laughs> that more inspiring message uh you know even if you don't have a <laughs> salvation army style of faith there's something i guess it's just my own idealistic uh uh instincts uh was more attracted to the earlier version of barbara than the character that she later became oh i totally agree i mean you can see mr undershaft is saying something similar to i help more people by building hotels yeah. than you do by you know, going out and actually helping people, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, by by injecting capital and um, labor into the into this. That's how I'm really making sure these people uh, are, are good, you know, and, and helpful. And I, that certainly plays out in today's climate uh, as well, only for me very negatively. Yeah. So I, I, I'm sympathetic to the same viewpoint there, um, but I don't know if it's if it's quite a, a relic. Yeah, well, it's maybe not a relic of the. I forget when you said it was written, but uh, it's the, this it's one the was, oldest. This uh, was 1905. Yeah, so it's not a relic of 1905, but it's certainly a relic of 1940 or whenever they were filming this, right? I don't know. Well, kind of what I'm saying is that the Undershaft character and his views on capitalism. Mm. Um, uh, it, it seems I, I can definitely see him standing up in, in today's, uh, you know, at the Republican right. convention. Yeah, sure. No, <laughs> yeah. Things, yeah. So. I think, yeah, Paul Ryan. This might be a favorite of Paul Ryan, right? Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> but not to get too political. Well, they would but, never d denigrate their religion either, right. you know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, but the view is that the that the you know they they it's almost transformed into we do our religion by capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. know. It's no, yeah. We've almost perverted it, maybe even more. I don't yeah, know. no, I think you're right in that regard. Yes, it is capitalism as a force for good, um, and <laughs> I guess a, a certain segment of the population, in fact, likely about half of the population here in the United States, probably uh, agrees with that sentiment. So maybe it isn't a relic. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and I guess I don't want to get political um, per se and, and denigrate all of it, but um, you know, I, I think that. 
I think that that's why Major Barbara maybe still stands out uh, among this pack of films as one that we look at quite often, though maybe that's why I've never really liked yeah. it. You know, it does just doesn't. I'm, I'm with David. The, the the better person is Barbara at the beginning of the play. Um, and even if even if she has to do some necessary evils, if you go along with that, she doesn't have to throw out all of the rest of her attributes. She could, I don't know, and I felt like that's kind of, and she's so gleeful about it yeah. at the end. Yeah. She feels she feels liberated and looks liberated. Yeah, yeah I think that's the part that just kind of grinded on me. It's like, this is a happy ending. It's like, no. Yeah, yeah. Especially with her concession to the Rex Harrison character at the end, Dolly. Um, though, do we get, do we, does he get another name at the end? I, I think he goes back to I, oh that's right there's he's supposed to give up and get a new name is he becoming an undershaft or Maybe, something yeah yeah he's the foundling he's he's the uh you know major or um undershaft I can't think of his name and undershaft senior he wants to you know he was a foundling and he came to his wealth because of help from someone else and you know because someone else gave him capital basically and he wants to find someone to do the same thing too and that's why I think Shaw's patronizing attitude pops out in this one as well um but that's who Cousins is he's he's the foundling who is supposed to come along and show that he can work and then that's that's Shaw trying to be progressive too you know let's Let's lift up someone else who's underneath us, mm-hmm. um, even if it means using the backs of others to do it. Yeah, yeah, that self-congratulatory aspect of you know, um, it is it is kind of a you know sort of a self-made man mythology, uh, which is not to you know not, not to certainly deny that Shaw came from very humble origins and became a very notable you know world famous uh, figure. Uh, I'm not certainly resenting that or, 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 you know, trying to knock him down, but, uh, there's, there does become this kind of, uh, you know, this, I guess I'll just use the word again, this elitism that just kind of does have kind of a, a disparaging attitude towards those who just don't quote unquote have the right gifts or right tools to, to make it at that level. I just feel like that that's just a, an attitude that just has justified way too many abuses and uh you know within living memory and i think that's that's a it's a temptation that shaw himself seems to have fallen for as he became convinced of his own uh unique remarkable you know genius and all of that mm-hmm. and i think we've sort of touched on this a little bit but i think it's probably uh important that we mention that these plays are hopelessly chauvinistic um, well, and- exactly. I was going to ask. I mean, there's just so much like domestic violence that yeah. it's 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 not necessarily admired, but it's really pretty brutal on several occasions. Yeah, and it's often played for laughs, um, yeah. which <laughs> I mean, I can't I can't abide that at all. Um, and I, like I was saying at the end, when Barbara totally co- uh, con- concedes all of her power. And all of her autonomy to Dolly, um, it's sort of played as this kind of great triumph. And it's um, where she says, basically, if you had asked me my opinion, I would have I would have I would have married someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, romantic. (laughs) But uh, that was really just kind of a cherry on top of a 
really gross misogynistic cake, you know, or ice cream. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was just <laughs> a like, very bitter cocktail. Yeah, yes. it's really, really yeah. just piling on there at the end. Um, just as far as like there, he did. I, I admire Shaw's attempt to kind of build this. Um, you know, like there are two opposing worldviews on display in the beginning, and both are on equal footing. And he just totally dismisses the what we would now consider to be the more progressive, more tender-hearted view that people, that very, very poor people, need help um, and need, you know, charity, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But at, at the same time, he also stacks the deck and showing that the people at, at the Salvation Army are kind of, um, you know. They're they're not the most morally There's upstanding kind of- people. Right. They're cynical. They're yeah. manipulators. Yeah. They're scammers in their own way. Right. Well, there's a scene in which uh, Undershaft and, and uh, Dolly, before Dolly's you know unfortunate conversion at the end, are kind of debating uh, the, the quality of life. What is the good life? You know? and, and Dolly, who's content to be a Greek teacher and just kind of get by and, and enjoy the simple things, uh, you know, uh, Undershaft is like, well, one must first have the money to have a, a worthwhile life, which really implies that unless you've got servants and opulent surroundings and you know the deference and the privileges of of the uh, you know the one percenters to use today's language you know your life is probably not going to be real content or real satisfied or, or real fulfilling and and really i, I think under shaft's perspective as as uh as narrow and as aggrandizing as it is kind of wins out in the end. I mean, I think that, that the, the final message of the movie is, yep, those are the people who are having the good life and, and those who are content to live on the crumbs. Well, that's what you got, you know, but again, <laughs> we, we really have been piling on yes. this film and I think there's, there's a fair, fair amount, uh, to be said along those lines, but I, I did enjoy, like we've already said, the, some of the cinematic aspects, some of the some of the streetscapes of East End London, uh, the, the the montage sequence of, uh, of all the sparks flying and the the heavy metal going on there, and just the character actors. Uh, was it Robert Newton? Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's yeah. He's also in. Uh, he, he was uh, the uh, oh, what's his name? He was in, in Oliver Twist. He was the villain there. I believe it's just a great character actor. Deborah Carr is uh, very young here, but uh, kind of getting her start in the film industry, and just a, a wonderful cast of you know British supporting actors, each of whom just kind of do their own little thing. Uh, I just find that stuff very, very charming, very amusing. Mm-hmm. Any other positive notes that we want to add on before we move on to Caesar and Cleopatra? Well, it's always a, a production that that gets people talking and. You know, even though he kind of just uh, steamrolls over uh, the side that most of us seem to be sympathetic to, you know, it, it, it is worthwhile to, to look at and kind of uh, take in that way rather than take his gospel as he intended it. Yeah. I think that, there, you know, we've we've had probably a better conversation of this <laughs> film uh, than we might be able to with the next two, mm. if I'm if I'm thinking ahead a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Uh, because there is a lot of interesting stuff going on and he does face things off. I just don't appreciate his approach, right. um, partially because I don't appreciate his worldview, but also, you know, he's not exploring these so much as creating, um, as Lady P started this out with, a, a, a polemic. You know, he, he's constructing this um, not to explore issues and to, to show nuance. He's, he's um, 
systematically eliminating nuance um, with each scene uh, to, in order to get to his one point. Yeah. And that's just not too appealing from a from a narrative or, you know, uh, philosophical standpoint if you want the complexity. Yeah. I mean, as far as positive notes go, um, well, I totally agree with everything you both just said. I, this is a polemic. It's... Uh, there's no nuance, there's no shades of gray. Um, but I think the pleasure in watching this movie and seeing a Shaw play is the way that the sentences and the words are constructed. And uh, he could be delightfully bitchy. Am I allowed to use that word? <laughs> yep, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, in that regard, this there there is some pleasure in watching... Um, Mr. Undershaft kind of take down his his uh, aristocratic family members, and um, <laughs> so if, if I got oh, and, the, and Charlie and all that kind yeah. of stuff, that, I just love that. It's kind of like a my man Godfrey type of situation. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So uh, while it's a frustrating film, it's not uh, it's not hard to watch. You know. Fair enough. Well, okay. Bringing us to see yeah. Cleopatra. <laughs> well, okay. So we do have Technicolor. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. do have Vivian Lee and Claude Rains. Yeah. We do have kind of a, it's not exactly a proto-historical epic because certainly Cecil B. DeMille and, and many others have been making historical epics for decades prior to Caesar and Cleopatra. But, you know, I was trying to find a good definitive list of technicolor historical epics, and I just couldn't find one as I was scrambling around for my last-minute preparations this morning. But this one really does seem to be a bit of ahead of the curve of what you see in the 1950s and, and into the 60s, you know, with uh, the remake of the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur's remake uh, with Charlton Heston. Of course, there's a current Ben-Hur remake that's uh, going down in flames uh, even as we speak here. But uh, this was kind of a, I mean, I guess in some ways you got to give Gabriel Pascal credit for uh, sort of foreseeing something that was on the horizon and he just maybe didn't quite have the vision or resources. Well, no, he had plenty of resources. This was like the most expensive English film ever made. So there's there are some things lacking here, but he certainly had a lot of interesting ingredients. Um, one of the thoughts I had as we were talking about Major Barbara versus these other two is that Major Barbara takes place in a world that's you know somewhat recognizable as our own, whereas these are just kind of silly costume pageants in some ways. I mean, they, they tap into a historic context, uh, you know, the glory that was Rome and, and, and all that that symbolized, especially in the heyday of the British Empire, which in some ways modeled itself after the Roman Empire, but it still seems kind of uh, distant and arch and archaic, uh, you know, in, in today's world. So Caesar and Cleopatra. So, so Lady P, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your... Uh, your your fondness for Vivian Lee and maybe your first reaction upon seeing it, however long ago it was, and what maybe has changed or stayed the same since. Well, uh, my fondness for Vivian Lee was born when I saw Gone with the Wind, like I'm sure many others. Um, of course, I, she's. A, I'm a big fan of eyebrow acting. And she's just the queen <laughs> of eyebrow acting. She's yeah, fantastic. well, work that face, yes. girl. She really does. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think. I mean, I think uh, an acting teacher will probably tell would have probably told her to like cool it with that, you know. Um, but I say the more eyebrow, the better. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> she does a fair amount of eyebrow acting in this one. Um, 
<laughs> I think uh, th- what's notable about her career is she played Vivian, or she played Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, and that is um, a movie that really tapped into that kind of youthful brattiness that she can really uh, that she is really good at imbuing in, in all of her characters. However, um, as as uh, dour, as uh, hopeless as things may seem at the end of Gone with the Wind, tomorrow is another day. Um, but after Gone with the Wind, all of her characters, or the great majority of her characters, come to really horrible ends. Um, the, you know, Waterloo Bridge is another British production, I believe, or it's at least starred. Uh, I mean, it's a very, it's a very British film. Obviously, Waterloo Bridge. Um, and that Hamilton woman, which I believe is in the Criterion Collection. Yes, it is. Yes. yes. And um, uh, you know, then obviously the most famous post Gone with the Wind film she did was uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Um, and But here we have youthful Vivian again. Um, she remains pretty naive throughout, though there is some hints of her coming into womanhood through the guidance of the elderly Julius Caesar, um, played by Claude Rains. Um, and this movie, I guess I was curious about it because of the biographical stuff going on behind the scenes, which is that she was pregnant during the production and had a miscarriage. And that kind of was just a huge, uh, which caused, I guess, a mental breakdown. Um, so I watched this film and I was, I don't know, I was expecting some kind of big emotional turn or just some, something more, I don't know. I don't know what exactly I was expecting from it, but it's, I was disappointed because the emotional stakes seem really low throughout, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, it's very difficult to really care about these characters yeah. I, I you know i've i've watched this film several times it was one of the very first uh, entries in my uh, old journey through the eclipse series column that i wrote for criterion cast and i think i chose this film uh as i was often want to do based on some kind of current event and i think at the time there were rumors about angelina jolie being cast in a new cleopatra remake so i said oh well that's interesting how about if i do this eclipse film that was about Cleopatra and just give it a spin. And so I've watched it then and I've watched it a couple times, uh, kind of to refresh my, my impressions for this podcast. And, you know, there's, there's tensions. I mean, there's, there's two empires in conflict. There's the sibling rivalry between Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy, each of which seem to have legitimate claims to the throne. And there's the, uh, attraction between Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, but, is it uh, an erotic attraction between potential lovers or is it a young woman's uh, appreciation of kind of a paternal figure, kind of like an uncle who can kind of give her some steadiness and reassurance as she's kind of asserting herself as a as a woman and as a queen for the first time? Uh, there's the pageantry and all of that, but it just feels like so much strutting around on stage and so much speaking of the lines that the great Shaw has given us to utter, and right. that's about what it all comes down to, you yeah, yeah, and apparently Shaw had issues with Vivian Lee's elocution, <laughs> which <laughs> like the well, of course, yeah, she's an American Hollywood actress, yeah. and of course, there's just going to be built-in scorn, right? right from well, the she get-go. was an American. Yeah. Oh, okay, she's British, okay. Right. yeah. Oh. 
That's right. Okay, you're right. But I'll stand corrected yeah. there. But uh, <laughs> but she made her fame in Hollywood, right, and exactly, probably yeah. brought some of that back with her. Right. Yeah. She was a, a well. You know, it's obvious that how <laughs> Shaw feels about women. So it is also uh, and also about language, yeah, right? I mean, yeah, that's the like whole thing. Are... I was like, "Where's your accent from?" Exactly. So it's like <laughs> that that determines your worth as a human being. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I, it's just so typical, right? Of course, he would go after yeah. the the young. You know, ingenue. Well, and then, you know, and then the, the character arc of Cleopatra herself, who is this this simpering, you know, woman child, who uh, the way she kind of minces about at the beginning and, and really requires the tutelage of the seasoned Julius Caesar to make something of herself. And again, that, that same condescending chauvinism, you know, uh, that, yeah, that Pygmalion. All it, it is, it is, it really is. It's a proto Pygmalion. And that, form. and that mockery, you know, Oh, the Romans are going to eat you. And, and just, yeah, and she's just completely falls for it. I mean, her, her superstition and gullibility is is pretty much on the same level as the uh, as the black servant who's always kind of bugging his eyes out and you know whimpering and running around crying whoa whoa you know again another kind of in insulting stereotype and you can just sort of see Shaw just takes all of that kind of attitude for granted right yeah I, I did not like this one at all um, I, I didn't didn't do any ratings for the films this time, but it certainly would have been toward the bottom. I just thought it was long and boring um, and stagey and without without much of interest. I mean, this story's been done many times, and it's, I think, almost always the ones I've seen have been done a, a million times better, even though I really like Vivian Lee and I like Claude Rains. I just don't think they were given any ability to do anything here. I thought it was, I thought it was really boring and... And the simpering Vivian Lee just did not work for me. That's fair. It also kind of lacks the big. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of pageantry in terms of you know costumes and you know there's a few cast of thousand scenes where you've got lots of people decked out in their regalia and standing around with their shields and spears and laurels and all that other stuff. But you know, there's there's no real great you know combat scenes. There's no chariot race. There's no you know, I mean, you know, there's a few shots of horses running around and armies marching through the desert, but there's not that real kind of gripping epicness that we've kind of come to expect when you see movies made on this scale. And again, well, I think it no, just was learning did, how to do that. Yeah, go ahead. They did import uh, Egyptian sand to make sure that it was <laughs> yes. the right color. Now that was impressive. I, when I saw that, I was like, "Whoa, that's, some, that's, that's the real sand. thing." Buddy. That's where you spend your money for production. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess you know. I just I, I will look at it as like, well, that's a nice little vintage Technicolor there, but probably not necessarily worthy of full high high def resolution uh restoration uh i don't really need this one on blu-ray folks <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can't properly see the sand unless it's on high definition well it's true that's, that's the biggest true. uh part of this yeah. film for me so <laughs> no I, I i like the story behind the scenes for shaw and for pascal with this one too that was much more interesting because 
you know, here they're kind of uh, floating on goodwill and, and doing some really great work together. And then they just bombed it with this one because Pascal wants to make a, a lavish, produ lavish production. So he spends all of the money, uh, more than all of the money. And Shaw still wants it to be rigorously faithful to his uh, stage script. And they just didn't go together at all and, and created this kind of uh, lump that audiences didn't, uh, didn't attach themselves to, didn't, weren't attracted to, and really set them apart. In fact, I think it's in Bruce Eater's uh, liner notes for it. Basically, after this, Shaw just said, I'm done. Um, you, you know, Pascal still had the rights to make Shaw's films, and he couldn't get it done for quite a while because no one would give him money but Shaw himself I think kind of maybe some humiliation um, stepped out and said I, I, I obviously can't make another film well, he was old yeah, he, he was, was 90 years 90 old 90 years but, old right so I mean I don't yeah. know that he maybe had a lot of energy for this kind of thing but but you're right I think the, yeah, I think the principle was had, stressful right. for, for both of them and I think the, and then to see it start to fail I mean you don't want to end your a life with so many accolades with abject failure but that's kind of what happened with this now no one's going to remember this no one thinks about this when they think of shaw's career um but you know for him in in, in that part of his life it it must have been disappointing oh well i mean the, he, his you know this was a film the making of which was the subject of newsreel footage and people were tracking this and, and anticipating something really bold and glorious. And, you know, I do, I do have a link to Bosley Crowther's uh, original review from the New York times. And he gave the film a pretty positive recommendation, but I think, again, that was just kind of goodwill and, and maybe a, a big uh, commercial critic doing his uh, duty to just kind of, you know, you know, put out some good word of mouth on a film that ultimately ended up kind of a stiff, uh, but you know it's it's still an interesting record. I think you know uh, Pauline some of the you know, some of the stuff that uh, was going on in Vivian Lee's life, even though it doesn't necessarily translate to the screen, it's a pretty important chapter in her biography, and and as such, uh, it deserves to be seen. I think you know Claude Rains uh, tries his best to kind of you know get through the material as best he can, but a lot of his uh, acting is just kind of. You know, he, he's doing his own kind of eyebrow acting much yeah. of the time. You know, maybe just not quite as not, not quite as winsome as Vivian Lee, yeah. who is at least uh, a, a pleasure to look at. You know, uh, and and then there's Stuart Granger. I guess he was kind of just an interesting, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of an interesting artifact in his ultra tan. Yeah. Uh, a foppishness there. Yeah, <laughs> that was something. His costume was something else. All of them. Yeah, yeah. So I guess if you want to, it's not it's not even quite to the level of camp, yeah. but there is there are some touches of that kind of thing. So it's it's not a complete waste of time. But uh, yeah, and, and again, I, I, I echo what you say, just in terms of Shaw's, you know, language constructions and and his his uh, lyrical flow. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's an aesthetic appeal to all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, how about we move on to Androcles and the Lion? And I guess I'll just say it feels to me like the uh, the arc of Gabriel Pascal's career it just is one downward plunge, you know, from the heights of Pygmalion <laughs> to the, you know, pretty decent, you know, recommended uh, Major Barbara to the thoroughly mediocre um, Caesar and Cleopatra. And then Androcles and the Lion, perhaps maybe a little bit more likable just because its ambitions are a little bit more humble, but mm -hmm. this is just such a goofy Perhaps, movie, yeah. you know, <laughs> I just, it's just, it really feels like, uh, 
a, a, a children's movie in many ways, although children's movie and George Bernard Shaw don't really seem to go together. Yeah. But it just I think it's because of the Andercles character and, and the way he's portrayed, even though there's a lot more going on than just that particular conflict. But I don't know, who wants to kind of give us a little walkthrough on this one? Well, I, I wanted to just quickly interject between the two films, Pascal couldn't get the funding. And it, it, from things that I read, he wanted to make St. Joan, mm-hmm. but another one of Shaw's plays, which I would have I would have liked that. I, it probably, you know, who knows how it would have turned out, um, especially since we do have some other pretty impressive uh, Joan of Arc uh, films. Uh, but, you know, th- this is very... I think what you said kind of fits. When you talked about Downward Projectory, I'm like, well, I like this one more than Caesar and Cleopatra. But but really, I think you're right. Part of that's just because there is a winsome charm. But it, it's, it still feels kind of uh, even more empty, I guess, in a way. It's a fable, and it's hard for it to look like much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, It's another Shaw treatment of, of religion, you know, faith and conscience and sort of the sincerity versus the utilitarian aspects of being a religious believer just because it fits or presents some kind of social advantage. I mean, I think Shaw ultimately was pretty skeptical about these matters and, and tried to kind of lampoon that in his plays as a, you know, kind of an opiate of the masses, uh, the Superman, the man of the future doesn't need to rely on this kind of hokum and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I will say some of the things that were added to the screenplay that were not in the original play are pretty interesting. The uh, I think his name's Spinto, the coward character. Yeah, um, yeah, the kind of the the panicky yeah. comic relief in some ways. Yeah, um, which I guess it's well, yeah, that's right yeah. because Shaw was dead by this time, mm-hmm. and so he was not involved, and they were able to adapt it a little bit more than they had been able to before so you're right there are some interesting um, changes yeah yeah and 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 i will say like that that scene when they're prepping or they're kind of meditating on the events that are to come in the uh the the coliseum and the the next day um when the character is thrown into that prison i think that's kind of where the movie picks up there's uh if there's anything I can recommend about the movie, it's that scene, um, and or maybe it's a like it's a sequence um, where they're again I forget what the uh, I forget the character's name who with the the guy with the brute strength. Oh, Ferovius. Uh, Fer- Ferovius, thank you. Yes, which um, is that same Robert yes, Newton character. Yes, mm-hmm. um, where he's sort of kind of meditating and agonizing about whether or not he will be able to maintain his serenity and his Christianity while he's uh, confronted with other people attacking him. Um, and then there's uh, the the Spinto character comes and uh, offers him uh, a challenge and, and uh, <laughs> he confronts him about you know the what it means to be a martyr and whether martyrdom buys you instant salvation and it's kind of just and uh, as an intellectual exercise kind of interesting um and it felt but it, it does feel kind of out of place with the rest of the movie which as you say is kind of goofy and kind of maybe for children maybe um to- totally kind of strange but 
uh, at the same time. It's proto Mr. Ed, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for, for Alan yes, Young, exactly. you, know, you can see that when he's dancing with the lion, they're like, hey, this could work yeah. with a talking yeah. horse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, uh, Victor Mature, I really like in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, he definitely has a, he brings a little hulky, hunky sex appeal to the proceedings yeah. there. It's, it, it's, it's a little bit, it, again, Putting him and 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 his kind of uh, his little hot hubba hubba thing going with Gene Simmons, mm-hmm. and then the whole Androcles, you know, the the thorn in the lion's paw, which really, to me, I guess that's the thing. To me, this is this is like the material of children's storybooks. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a fable and it is a a story that's often told um, in different formats of a of a genteel human who takes mercy or takes pity on a wounded animal and. And winds up, you know, having the favor returned in a moment of need. So I've, I've just kind of seen that in just reading stories to my children when they were younger years ago. So, yeah, it, it's kind of this weird hybrid yeah. <laughs> of, of biblical costume drama yeah. and and uh, you know, a sat- Saturday afternoon matinee for the kids. Yeah. And I guess, do you mind if I ask yeah. if you guys can reconcile the two storylines? We've got um, Androcles and the Lion. And his own faith of going out there. Right. He's a very he's he, a very meek soul. I mean, he's a, almost like yeah. an animal rights, uh, you know, uh, you know, just a real peaceful, <laughs> salt of the earth type of guy who's really just out to be kind and good hearted, and you know, who who can who can dislike a guy like that, right? Saddled with such yeah, an and he's very likable. But how does that play in with the other the other thing that I think is more um, intellectually appealing to think about with? You know, as a believing um, Christian, are you better off sacrificing yourself or living on and um, trying to better this world? I, I mean, he wrote this not too long after Nietzsche had kind of um, put put forward his own theories that, you know, Christianity kind of um, does some bad things for this world because everyone's looking forward to the next one. And so they don't stop and and make this world better. And I think that he's kind of playing with that a little bit here where you've got Ferovius who, yeah, you can go out there and you can all die and that's fine. Or you can put up a fight and live on and try to, you know, survive and and even by doing so, do some things for your religion, you know, help others. You're apparently a great uh, proselytizer. Maybe you should, uh, should go out and convert some souls rather than just die in an arena. And... And actually work to make this world better. And I think that that's some interesting stuff. I have no idea, though, how it um, kind of uh, dovetails with Androcles and the lion with that story, yeah. other than the fact that they're all thrown into the same Colosseum. Yeah, that, yeah, it's two completely anything? different movies, two completely <laughs> different messages. Um yeah, that was my yeah. thought. I can't put the message together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one seems to suggest go ahead and act on this faith. The lion that you um, for you know, helped beforehand. Obviously, we'll never eat you. Yeah. Um, you guys can dance yeah. together, which oh, that's so funny. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but but I don't see. That's not how the faith isn't what wins out with uh, Ferovius and all the Christians that were put in there to be hacked apart by the. Uh, gladiators. Right. Yeah, again, you've got one uh, of these manufactured polemic endings where you know the characters basically do 
renounced the pacifism and the nonviolence and are kind of saved by it because the emperor decides that, hey, Ferovius is a pretty badass dude and we can put him on our side and it's all good now, you know? Yeah. So might as well just throw that little pinch of incense on the altar and save yourself the trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And also watching the movie, this is 1950s. And so I was thinking about The Blacklist and... um Mm -hmm. Kind of the virtue of saving yourself over, you know, or versus um, maintaining your ideals and not giving in to pressures from higher powers or whatever. So I didn't know. Hmm. I didn't see anything about any writers on this being involved with the blacklist. But this is a Hollywood production, which unlike the other two. Yeah, this is a, it's an RKO picture. Yes, you're right. Yes. Um, hmm. So I'd wonder if that played any part in it. Um but it seems, as we say, that, that there, while there were additions to this text, as um, the the original, uh, the blueprint remains George Bernard Shaw's. So um, I don't know if that was just my kind of uh, putting something there that wasn't intended to be there, or if that was actually something someone wanted to. If this is actually more subversive than than maybe it appears. Yeah, you know, that's a great context, and I had not drawn that connection, but I think you're right. It is very contemporary to what's going on in the film industry at this very moment that the film is being made. But uh, without maybe a little bit more in-depth research and background, we may not know if those connections really sustain. But certainly, even in the unconscious, if you will, about what was on people's minds and, and what texts were being chosen for, for film adaptation... Again, this this is, yeah, I guess as we're sort of talking it through right now, I do find it somewhat intriguing just what was the story behind this film actually getting made? And again, Bruce Eder kind of gives some some insights into that. But uh, and there's, just, there's just so many oddball elements. The, the presence of Jim Bacchus, uh, Mr. Howell from Gilligan's Island, <laughs> this barking centurion is just another like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, I mean, for me, growing up just watching Gilligan's Island uh, after school as a as a kid and, and uh, just thinking of Mr. Howell. Well, of course, Jim Bacchus is also Mr. Magoo, the other great <laughs> iconic character. But uh, uh, I was just kind of pleasantly surprised to see him turning up here and, and you know, playing a kind of a fun bit role. Uh, and again, you know, just putting on the costume and, and, uh, just, just doing that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so were you able to, what was your takeaway from the film ultimately? Was it just like a, a goofy kind of, again, relic of his time or just a goofy, I don't know. It's not even a relic of its yeah. time. It's just a my, kind of oddity. My, yeah, it it it, it true, to me it's a true oddity because it is dealing with some fairly complex and even abstract theological philosophical issues. I mean, some of the extended debates between uh, uh, the Victor Mature character and Gene Simmons, and you know, he's he's obviously a a, a, a pagan Roman warrior who's still you know quite attracted and of course you know gene simmons is radiantly beautiful in this film uh but she's got her principles she's got her ideals and and he's kind of trying to find that little crack in her her armor and and i think she actually is given a more credible 
characterization as she sort of stands up for what she believes in uh, in, in her dialogues. I mean, I don't get the same total sense of buckling under <laughs> that you get with Major Barbara. So, the, so there's that. Uh, but, you know, I'm just thinking, okay, so again, is this is this a movie that's aimed at children? Is this a family movie? Uh, how does all of this kind of, you know, fairly overt uh, skepticism and, and um, I don't know, whether it's a secularistic idea or just some other kind of, you know, aggressive debate about the merits of religious faith. I mean, that's, that just seems a little bit unusual or out of place in a, you know, a family friendly film of the early 1950s. So, um, is, is, is Shaw being, well, Shaw, Shaw was being Shaw, but in, in making this film was Pascal trying to be provocative, uh, on those topics or was he just happy to have the, the green light to say, here, here, you know, go ahead and make this property into a film and get back in the saddle again. I mean, why this film instead of others? Was there something that RKO studio says, you know what, this is a winner here. This is, this one is worth going ahead with, uh, as opposed to any of the other Shaw, uh, plays that, that Pascal might've adopted. So again, I have some unanswered questions as to the elements that came through to, to make this film actually happen. But, you know, it's, again, it's an intriguing cast and just kind of a strange mashup. So yeah, oddity is probably about as succinct of a tag as I can put on it. But that final scene of Androcles, you know, literally dancing in the Coliseum is such a goofball moment that it just kind of overshadows all the other more serious types of things. And that's, that was kind of my big takeaway, you know, from way back when, when I first watched this, like (laughs) this is where a man dances with a person in a lion costume. It's kind of like a, kind of a Godzilla (laughs) type of moment where, you know, we're obviously running around in rubber suits here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you know that Alan Young, um, you know, he, he, you know, went on to do Mr. Ed and, and Scrooge McDuck. He just died about two or three months ago. Yeah, I, I do remember He's seeing like that. He's like ninety-seven or right. something like that. So he, he, you know, it's it was it was fun to see him. I, I, and probably for the same thing. You know, I, that was my biggest takeaway was was Alan Young and and the goofiness, uh, despite all the other stuff that is interesting. Um, but anyway, I just thought that was interesting because you know this made sixty nearly you know sixty-five years ago, and uh, he's not. Like just this young person yeah. in it, you know. Yeah, he wasn't the child actor he here, died. necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, I couldn't find any any um, documentation or anything on the Nicholas Ray uncredited director position. Um, I wonder. Oh, was, was Nicholas Ray involved in this I guess production? So, right. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So unless I misread that, uh, that's maybe. Suggest that, that mentioned ma- in the liner notes. It's been a while since I've read a movie. Yeah, I think. Well, I can confirm, um, but uh, let's see. Andrew Clay and uh, uh, Andrew Clay. Oh yeah, yeah, the idea of casting Harpo Marx as right. Amber Cleese is mentioned there. So yeah, just a, a, a weird, almost kind of random tumbling together of pieces that. Somehow, yeah, <laughs> by some miraculous act of osmosis, turned into a finished film. Yeah. You know. Now it does say that George Sanders was meant to play uh, Caesar, and I would have yes. loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love him in basically it's anything, so true. but um, 
to have him playing the Caesar role with that voice uh, and have Alan Young in the same yep. film with his voice <laughs> it would have been so much fun. Uh, if only. Yeah. I mean, according to IMDb, <laughs> Nicholas Ray was uh, an uncredited director on this, which, you know, hmm. he's renowned iconoclastic Hollywood director. Um, which maybe accounts for some of the discord in the messaging because his agenda might have been different from Pascal's or and maybe even different from the producer. So I'm not sure exactly what his involvement was, but I, would it, be, it would be very interesting to find that out. Well, there may be some mysteries that are just lost to the so sands true. of time here because, yeah, it's just, it's just, this is just a, uh, kind of a kooky little uh, tag along here made again, as Trevor's mentioned after Shaw had passed on and, uh, and, and another interesting little anecdote about the, the life of Gabriel Pascal, he was almost broke. I mean, he was deeply, deeply in debt, uh, through some of his, I'm sure very questionable and very scattered business dealings, but he still had an option, uh, on the, uh, the prospect of turning Pygmalion into a musical, which was a, an idea that Shaw was vehemently opposed to, uh, when he was still alive. But, uh, because Pascal actually still held those rights at the time of his death, uh, when that option was actually activated and turned into a Broadway play, uh, his estate became incredibly wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's just, you know, again, it goes back to that biography on Wikipedia where some of the uh, disputes uh, that took place among his uh, various claimants, uh, his lovers, mistresses, wives, etc., who all wanted a piece of that pie. So it's <laughs> just another weird little yeah. wrench thrown into the whole thing. I guess it's worth noting that um, Pascal did not live much longer after after Shaw, though Shaw was 40, 45 years older than him. Pascal passed away very shortly after Androcles and the Lion came out and just a, a year or two before My Fair Lady was first uh, first produced on Broadway. Yep. The inscrutable turns of fate, isn't it strange? <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. So any, I mean, maybe this is a good wrap up time here. I think we've uh, each shared our thoughts pretty uninhibitedly. We, we tell it like it is here on the Eclipse Viewer, and uh, yeah. So we've kind of already given a little estimation of the set as maybe lower tier. Um, uh, any final thoughts you've got, Lady P? Final thoughts? Yeah, I feel like we've been pretty harsh and and rightfully so i don't know i <laughs> the the wikipedia entry on george bernard shaw compares him i forget i forget which critic made the claim that he was the the greatest british playwright second only to shakespeare um which i think maybe it's time to to revisit that maybe it's oh, time I for a reevaluation so. I... I think Shaw was certainly prolific. He he cranked out. I mean, there's a lot of titles to his credit, but you know, you don't see his stuff being produced anywhere near the frequency of Shakespeare. Yeah. And I think again, his very highly charged political uh, sort of uh, partisanship, I guess, uh, on, on a whole range of issues, makes him incomparably less universal than Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare had part of Shakespeare's, you know, many facets of his genius is that his, his dramas and his comedies hit absolutely universal human themes. They can be translated across cultures, across time. And, and 
people with strong beliefs in any number of different directions, except for a few, you know, exceptions. I mean, there's the Shylock characters, and there's a few others that are, you know, a little bit more blinkered and all of that. But for the most part, Shakespeare is is transcendent. Uh, Shaw, I don't think, has anywhere near that level of universality and uh, and as we've already made pretty clear uh, can be argued down pretty aggressively mm -hmm. um, from a contemporary standpoint I think yeah. he had some huge blind spots that you just don't get the same with Shakespeare right yeah I think it's a no, it's hard to pin an ideology on Shakespeare right. it's hard to know what he really thought about religion or monarchy or any of these things because his plays go every direction you're right. That's just not the case with yeah. Shaw. I'd be curious which. Um, what are the other contenders um, for next best after after Sha or after um, Shakespeare? Certainly, there are plenty writing at the time of Shakespeare that should jump in line before right. Shaw. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> well, I'm sure that list exists somewhere. It's uh, so probably somewhere on the internet. Um, yeah. If I wasn't so into movies, maybe I'd have a more theatrical yeah. <laughs> uh, reference uh, point to uh, to bring into the discussion here. But yeah, I think I think Shaw probably again just was part of that great man theory of the early twentieth century, where he was just one of the loudest voices and had a lot of things in print, and and perhaps I'm, I'm sure a lot of his plays were fairly flattering to men in positions of power and so he kind of won that by default but i don't think he'll stand up nearly as well over the course of time mm -hmm. yeah let me let me just throw out a few names okay. here see how how you respond to them so there's there's harold painter yeah. who also won the nobel prize a few years ago and it'll be interesting to see how his uh, stuff kind of ages um, we've got tom right. stoppard who i love yeah, stoppard's name uh, came to still, mind yeah. he's still living um, let's see. We've got Oscar Wilde, well, obviously. Yeah. Um, he's Irish, but so, so is so. Shaw. So, um, we got Noel Coward. Right. Noel, Noel Coward, Coward. Yes. And, and I love his stuff. He's yeah. a contemporary. Uh, well, I guess he kind of was born after, even after many of these plays were written, but he feels contemporary yeah. since Shaw lived so long. Um, and I love a lot of his stuff. And then, you know, we get back to Christopher Marlowe and Ben Johnson. We got Peter Schaefer who just died. Um, there, there's a whole host and I think almost all of them I would put above mm -hmm. Shaw, but I'm glad Shaw exists and, and, uh, you know, I think he's, he, he was witty and he presents to us some, some interesting things to talk about, not the least of which is his own, um, blinkered, uh, perspective, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> as David yeah. put it. I so. think the, ultimately my takeaway from this set is just that, uh, it's careful, you know, don't be so cocky in your your point of view and always remember you know nothing. Um, and it's important, <laughs> yeah, that's ultimately the, like the humbleness and uh, humility go a long way. And uh, it's important to make sure that we see everything from we try and contend with people with different viewpoints and try and continually wrestle with different ideas and not be so sure of our own uh rightness and righteousness that's that's I kind guess. of my takeaway yeah that's that's very well said I, I really do appreciate shaw's willingness to say hey let's have a really robust discussion let's let's try to put different points of view in opposition to each other and i think you've got a lot of that in all three of these films there are those kind of moments of you know for all their staginess and talkiness if you sit and listen to the words and if you really consider 
the perspectives being you know argued on on multiple sides of a of an issue yeah there's there's some food for thought there and it's the kind of thing that can challenge us and kind of get us to look a little bit deeper than we might otherwise when we just kind of pop in a movie for pure entertainment's sake but i think when Shaw comes down and says, now that we've had our discussion, let me tell you yeah, exactly. what the answers yeah. are. Yeah. That's where he, he really runs the big risk of losing us because he's so confirmed in his own biases that uh, he doesn't really want to give us the respect or the ability just to sort of make up our own mind. And I think, you know, that's so, you know, you go into this this set kind of expecting that you may need to do some pushing back. Uh, but there's the quaintness. There's the. Uh, the, the the charming production values. Uh, Pascal did get some pretty fine uh, actors, both leads and supporting roles, uh, to populate his films. And uh, these are just not the kind of movies that you see being made very often nowadays. So there's that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, good. Well, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode of The Eclipse Viewer. Lady P, it's always a pleasure to chat with you and to uh, reconnect, and I'm sure we will have further collaborations down the road, both on our podcast and me and Trevor taking our turns over your way over at FlixWise. So thanks for joining us so much. Really nice to have you with us again. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Trevor, anything you want to sort of uh, offer as parting words as we get ready to uh, wrap this one up and look ahead? No, I think I'm ready to look ahead as well. It, it, it's uh, we've got quite a slate in front of us as we whittle these down. We've been saving some heavy hitters, so yeah, yeah. This this episode here kind of feels up. like our back to school <laughs> episode. Yeah, do your homework. This is our summer, <laughs> the end of summer break. <laughs> Read your George Bernard Shaw yeah. English Literature 101, right? But uh, yeah, we we do have some pretty uh, epic stuff coming up next week or next episode in September. We're going to be talking about Kenji Mizuguchi's Fallen Women. Uh, this will be kind of coinciding with the uh, Criterion release upcoming of The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum. Ooh. So uh, that will be a really nice uh, Mizuguchi-themed September as we are looking at perhaps covering that film, uh, The Last Chrysanthemum, on the Criterion cast main episodes of Scott and I. So that's uh, kind of what's on our horizon. And then after that, yeah, we've got Mikatsu Noir, we've got the Louis Mal documentaries, uh, post-war Kurosawa, late Ozu, the Duvivier set, the, the newest and perhaps last of the Eclipse series that we haven't yet covered. So we've got some big stuff on the way and some great guests coming up and uh, really uh, looking forward to that as we do wind down our summertime and uh, get back to work. <laughs> so thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, you can find us at Eclipse Viewer on Twitter, although I haven't really been real active there. Uh, I'm on Criterion Refs on Twitter. Lady P, how can people find you and connect with your uh, various internet presences? Right, yeah. Twitter, the handle is at FlixWise, F-L-I-X-W-I-S-E. Or you could, if you like the sound of my voice, you might also enjoy the FlixWise podcast, uh, which is available on iTunes and Stitcher and all those places. Um, or you can just check out the website. It's www.flixwise.com. It's a tremendous podcast. If you're a fan of this one, you need to listen to FlixWise as they do excellent work. And she and Martin and then the wonderful lineup of guests that uh, Lady P has been able to corral over there, totally worth your listen, even if you haven't watched the movie yet. Totally to get into it. Uh, Trevor, any other little self-promotion you want to do here before you wrap it up? Well, I don't know if I'll get this. we'll get this posted by the time, but um, 
speaking of big personalities, the Orson Welles uh, duel is coming out yes, this next week. That's right. With uh, the Chimes at Midnight, speaking of Shakespeare, I guess, and The Immortal Story, which I watched for the first time this past week and will be reviewing soon. Uh, I don't know what to say about it yet. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> well, the pressure's off. As, as we've already done today, just tell it like it is. Yeah. Give us your straight take and don't feel pressured to flatter or uh, pay obeisance, right? <laughs> well, thank I, I you. I guess yeah. I need to even know what what I don't like. It's it's quite the thing. Have you watched it yet, David? I watched it on Hulu like a couple of years ago, and it didn't okay. exactly bowl me over, but I'm hoping it was supplements and high def and yeah, kind of a... Lot. There's some good stuff there for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, no, I, I like I, that one a lot. But I'm just the a immortal kind story, of yeah. a diehard Wells fan. So. Yeah, and Jean Moreau. I mean, yeah. she's always pretty fab. So, yeah, I think I, it'll be good. I'm, I, I, need to, I need to revisit it before I write because I most of my my thoughts are I don't really know... What yeah. <laughs> it wasn't purely negative. It wasn't positive. It was kind of, huh. Yeah. <laughs> this <laughs> thing <laughs> exists. <Yeah. laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> You'll work it out. All right. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, and that's a nice note to leave it on. We'll all work it out. Yeah. So we'll continue to work it out, and we wish you all the best as you work it out in your post-Labor Day journey through life. Thank you for listening in, everybody, and we'll talk to you next month. Bye-bye. <laughs>